circumstances of our current life and our culture seem, to me at least, to greatly preclude our comprehending fully the experience of our Baptist forefathers and more largely the usual condition of the church, that is with a capital C church, since its inception. We have lived so long under the cloudless skies of religious liberty that we can little appreciate, if we can appreciate at all, what it meant to lift our eyes and see only perpetual thunder and lightning of a threatened or actual persecution. Harassment, destruction, loss, fines, imprisonment, banishment, and yes, even death. We may read of those days. We may visit the places and attempt to immerse our minds in the experience, but for all that effort, we are so far removed from it that it appears to us at last as a dream or a nightmare from which we awake and struggle to remember anything more than some vague dread or terror that we soon and gladly forget. It is to be feared, wrote the British Baptist Edward Underhill in 1846. It is to be feared, he said, that as a body, we are too ignorant of our own history. And of the great and good men who lost all in the maintenance of our principles. Our young people especially, he said, need information on these points. 18. 46. Even in our own day, in which the robust liberties our fathers enshrined in the nation's founding documents are slowly and systematically being hollowed out by successive generations who are all too happy to make a Faustian bargain, trading the solid blessings of liberty for the chimera of security. Even in such a day, we enjoy a greater degree of freedom than has been known to millennia of believers. But that very freedom has made us sadly unappreciative of its blessings, reticent of its defense, and unprepared wholly for its demise. But I digress from my assigned task and return to the main road. Nearly 1,700 years had passed since the events of the fourth chapter 
of the book of Acts when the disciples of Christ were arrested and commanded by the united civil and religious power to speak no more of Jesus. 300 years after that event, the persecutions only increased when nominal Christianity gladly united with the civil power to which we have referred in a previous lecture. For the next 1,400 years, more persecution was effected and more blood was shed by this union of corrupt church and compliant state than shall ever be known this side of eternity. If pagan idolatry slew its thousands of Christ's sheep, then pagan Christianity slew its ten thousands and brought a reproach on the Savior's name with which the world to this day mocks the church, capital C. Mocks it as a fraud. This is not to say that periods of, if not peace, then a, at least an uneasy armistice was declared by our persecutors, but you will know them to be by your own study. Few, far between, and in the end were only brief moments of calm before multiplied centuries of storm. It is creditable to the English nation that they did at least and at last recognize after nearly a century of shedding their neighbor's blood by war and persecution that something must change in that 17th century. Even though this required the overthrow of one ruling family and their forcible replacement by another in order to its accomplishment. I'm speaking, of course, of that event known to history as the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when the Stuarts were removed by William III of the House of Orange. This was quickly followed by the Act of Toleration in that same year. As beneficial as it was, that is this act, as beneficial as it was in comparison to the prior state of affairs in England, I must remind you that it was, after all, a toleration act. A toleration act. As John Quincy Adams, the Baptist minister, not the president, instructs us in his quintessential book, Baptists, the only thorough religious reformers. If you do not have it, acquire it tomorrow. As he instructs us on this very subject, quote, toleration is the allowance of that which is not wholly approved and is therefore objectionable 
because it presupposes the existence of some mere human authority which has the power to grant or to withhold from man the exercise of freedom in religious matters. It is manifest, Adams continues, that if the right to tolerate exists in man, the right to prohibit and to dictate to the conscience must also exist with it. And thus, toleration becomes merely another name for oppression. Whatever relief the act of toleration provided, it only cleared the room of the smoke and flames of oppression. But it still restricted the occupants of the house to a life within its charred walls and its sooty furniture, constantly reminding them that if they had escaped the fire, they were not yet allowed to breathe the fresh air of freedom. No, no, it would not be kings and priests voluntarily relinquishing their hold upon men's souls, but rather the steadfast labors of a people, a people everywhere spoken against, and their persevering efforts holding fast against the powers and the abuses of those kings and priests. To them we owe the honor of exhibiting the principle and establishing the practice of what we call today religious liberty, or as one of our spiritual ancestors so named it, soul liberty. I am obliged to remind us all that the reformers of the 16th century, however much we should honor them for breaking the yoke of Rome, and we do, however much we should honor them for breaking the yoke of Rome by proclaiming a pure gospel, these were no friends of liberty. They never drank from its well, nor advocated its truths. Again, as Adams observed of them, they clamored for liberty and toleration when they were oppressed. And then as soon as they came to power, began to oppress others. For all that these accomplished in bringing to light the scriptural truths of salvation in matters of conscience, they did but turn the coercive power on its head. For as Underhill very keenly observed, quote, the reigning sovereignty of ecclesiastical authority till then exercised by the Pope was exchanged in every country where the Reformation took root and flourished by the church becoming subordinate to the civil power. Thus, was one religious tyrant replaced by the many. No, no, the seeds of true freedom of conscience flourished finally in the soil of this American continent. And it was Baptists, Baptists by their foundational doctrines that laid the cornerstone of that civil liberty 
enshrined in our Constitution. Other denominations, you will know, other denominations have a claim to a part in this work. While we may appreciate their recent conversion to such generous principles, we are obliged to remind them that their forefathers annoyed, oppressed, and murdered, yes, I said murdered, our spiritual forefathers in every country in which they were found. So we smile. And we thank them for their belated support. But we ask that they will excuse us if we feel it necessary to remain rather vigilant as long as their own practice makes members by force that is, the force of infant membership, and keeps them so by coercion. I said a few moments ago that it was in America's soil that religious liberty's oak grew tall and spreading. And to that we owe a debt unable to be paid to all our Baptist ancestors who suffered as well as fought for that liberty. But we ought to begin where that tree first struck its roots. It has always been a foundational doctrine of those who espoused Baptist sentiments that the state has no warrant in Scripture to interfere or to enforce in what has been called the first table of the law, that is, those commandments concerning God and His worship. Their advocacy of that principle became more bold and more widely diffused as the 17th century dawned. In the same year that the translators were publishing the authorized version of the Scriptures, the few and despised Baptists of England were publishing to the British and to the world a confession of faith that unequivocally stated this doctrine. Quote, We believe that the magistrate is not to meddle with religion or matters of conscience nor compel men to this or that form of religion, because Christ is king and lawgiver of the church and conscience. Unquote. Scores of tracts and books on this principle followed during that century, but they may all be summed up by the words of the Baptist Leonard Busher in 1614 when he wrote that it may be lawful for every person or persons, yea, Jews, Turks, pagans, and papists, to write, dispute, confer and reason, print and publish any matter touching religion, either for or against whomsoever. One such publication, written from that infamous Newgate prison, of which we have had occasion to speak repeatedly and lamentedly, 
One such publication came to the press from that prison even after its Baptist authors were denied ink by their jailers in order to attempt to prevent them spreading their seditious writings. But ingeniously, our forefathers wrote on scraps of paper with milk brought to them by their friends and later holding the paper to a candle flame the words would appear and they would transcribe them. Roger Williams, you I trust will know that name. Roger Williams observed of this particular treatise and of the treatment of Baptists generally. Their arguments were written in milk and answered in blood. You cannot appreciate, we cannot appreciate how radical in a religious sense the publication of those views was except that you remember what I said moments ago that for 14 1,500 years, official Christianity had known no existence apart from the power of the civil sword to enforce conformity. Nor how radical, in the sense that that term radical is used linguistically, in that it was a complete return to the root principle as expounded in Scripture Scripture itself, and not the traditions of men. And it was to this principle, liberty of conscience, that they connected, that is the Baptist, that they connected civil liberty as the necessary condition for the free exercise of the conscience. Because our Baptist forefathers prized that liberty. They condemned the tyranny of the church or the state that compelled spiritual obedience and temporal to submission to it. So it cannot be surprising that Baptists were found in large numbers among the British Parliament's army in its contest with Charles Stuart. Cromwell, you will know that name, Cromwell the Independent owed no small debt to the Baptists who swelled the ranks for his final victory at Naseby over Stuart's army. And he knew their Baptist principles full well. Writing to his largely Presbyterian parliament after the battle, Cromwell forthrightly admonished them, quote, Sirs, honest men served you faithfully in this action. Sirs, they are trusty. I beseech you in the name of God not to discourage them. He that ventures his life for the liberty of his country, I wish he trust God for the liberty of his conscience and you for the liberty he fights for. Cromwell. But George Lorimer, 
the Baptist pastor of the late 19th century, George Lorimer, also reminds us that the Baptist love of liberty was bound up in no man, not even a Cromwell. He writes in his great work called The Great Conflict concerning later circumstance, neither should it be forgotten that these same honest men who stood so loyally with Cromwell at Naseby in equal honesty stood against him when he appeared to be usurping prerogatives which belonged to the people. And with still grander honesty entreated him when a misguided parliament urged him to assume the kingly rank, not to wound the old cause he had served so well by accepting the crown of England. But if the, if the revolution may be measurably attributed to the influence of Baptists, so to their noble confidence in the power of truth, to their ceaseless struggle against the empire of prejudice, and to their comprehensive views of civil government, may be traced the tone of thought essentially opposed to persecution, which during this and subsequent periods distinguished the writings of some who are now regarded as the chief ornaments of other religious communities. Yes, men whose names yet echo in our memories. And if they do not, we should be ashamed. For as Lord Thomas Macaulay wrote, quote, a people who do not honor the deeds of their worthy dead will do nothing worthy of being honored by their descendants. I say again, men whose names should echo in our memories. John Toombs, Henry Jesse, Daniel Dyke, Hansard Knowles, Hercules Collins, Vavasor Powell, Thomas DeLong, Keach, Bunyan, Colonel Robert Overton, Admiral William Penn, father of the Quaker, and Major General Thomas Harrison were but a few of a vast regiment of Baptists who preached and labored and fought and died for liberty, full religious liberty in Britain. DeLon, you know, wasted away in prison. Knowles was persecuted for de decades. Bunyan languished in his den, he called it, for 12 years. Harrison was hanged, then drawn and quartered. None, none lived to see that full freedom they so greatly longed for. In the end, their British descendants received only toleration. A toleration that yet required them to obtain permission of magistrate or minister to speak freely 
or act conscientiously. Nor were our ancestors' circumstances significantly improved for 150 years in the land to which the pilgrims fled for their own religious liberty, a liberty they reserved exclusively to themselves. New England was soon enough overspread with the standing order, as it was called. Congregationalism that taxed its citizens for the support of its ministers nailed shut the doors of any who dared attempt to enjoy non-conforming church privileges, jailed those who persisted in their obstinance, and banished from civil society those they determined at last to be incorrigible in their dangerous sentiments of religious liberty. In the South, Virginia was but one example of that power the Anglican Church exercised from across the Atlantic. The established church, as it was called there, used its power to thwart any and every attempt to obtain even the slightest liberties for dissenters from the true religion. And it would not be until the dawn of the War of Independence that their grip would begin to be loosened. As late as 1774, James Madison, himself an Episcopalian, but clear-sighted enough to recognize Baptists as some of the staunchest friends of American liberty because they were untiring advocates of religious liberty. Madison wrote from Culpeper County, Virginia to a friend in Philadelphia, quote, the diabolical hell-conceived principle of persecution rages among some. And to their eternal infamy, be it said, the clergy can furnish their quota of imps for such purposes. There are at this time in the adjacent county not less than five or six well-meaning men in close jail for publishing their religious sentiments, which in the main are very orthodox." Unquote. Victor Masters, in his survey of the Baptists in the South, gives us a lengthy list of Baptists in Virginia jailed as disturbers of the peace. James Waller, Lewis Craig, James Childs, William Weber, Joseph Anthony, James Greenwood, Robert Ware, William Lovell, John Shackelford, David Dinsley, John Burris, John Young, Edward Herndon, James Goodrich, Bartholomew Cheming, and John Pickett. And these, he says, were but a small sample of the many that were jailed, imprisoned for the crime of preaching while Baptist. Time would certainly fail us to trace the incidents in every colony of the persecution of Baptists for their pestilent principles of religious freedom. 
But we must hasten to the notice of two more events. The first of these is the establishment on American soil of full religious liberty. To Roger Williams is due the honor of securing a charter and of establishing a government that enshrined the operation of full religious liberty as a foundation of its constitution. Williams was a Welshman born in 1599. He was early immersed in Puritan principles by his father. He was educated for a career in law, but after his conversion, studied for the ministry and received Anglican ordination. Unfortunately for Williams, he carried Puritanism to its proper and logical conclusion and became convinced that the magistrate had no power to punish for, quote, breaches of the first table, unquote, as he called them, or stated positively that soul liberty was the right of every man. Soon enough, his views brought down upon his head the displeasure of king and archbishop, and he fled England for Boston, Massachusetts. Sadly, he found there as much opposition to those principles as he had in England. And he moved to Salem and became, for a time, minister to the congregational church there. But soon enough, his preaching stirred the religious and civil authorities in Boston to force his, his departure from that church. And ultimately, in 1636, his flight out of their reach to avoid arrest and his return to England. Having escaped from the Lord Bishops in England, and now from the Lord Brethren in Boston, as another dissenter had famously named them, he settled in Rhode Island and there became, there began that grand experiment in religious liberty. As early as 1638, the inhabitants of that plot of land that Williams had named upon his arrival there, Providence, covenanted together into a body politic upon these terms. Quote, we whose names are here underwritten, being desirous to inhabit in the town of Providence, do promise to submit ourselves in active or passive obedience to all such orders or agreements as shall be made for public good of the body in an orderly way, only in civil things. In 1643, Williams himself returned to England to accomplish two things. The publication of his most famous work, titled The Bloody Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience Disgust, and to secure a patent for Providence and Rhode Island from Charles I. 
He was successful on both accounts and that patent, for whatever self-serving reasons, was granted. Secured to the colony in 1644, the right to establish its own laws, of which this was the first. Quote, Every man who submits peaceably to civil government in this colony shall worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience without molestation. Unquote. Thus did Rhode Island become, as Adams described it, the first spot the sun had ever shone upon where the rights of conscience were fully acknowledged and it was founded by a Baptist. And it may be considered that it may be considered the germ of that religious liberty which all American citizens now enjoy. But it was only upon this little spot, this island, that such freedom existed until the country had fully wrested its independence from an unyielding king and parliament. Even then, the established churches were not merely reluctant, but bitterly antagonistic to relinquishing their privileges and power. A second war had to be fought simultaneous with that of national independence. And that one would be fought not with rifle and gunpowder, but with argument, persuasion, redress, and ultimately power of living example. It was the Baptist, the Baptist, who fit that battle. And as they had in Cromwell's army in England in the prior century, so in Washington's regiments, Baptists filled the ranks. For they saw in this contest for civil liberty a greater struggle they had waged for 100 years or more on American soil the fight for full religious freedom. Proof that they were in great numbers, the friends of civil liberty may be had in abundance, but I shall offer you only one for now. Rhode Island, that first spot, as Adams called it, and only spot until that hour, Rhode Island, though not having more than 50 thousand residents at the outbreak of war, and that is men and women together. Rhode Island, at the outbreak of the war, little Rhode Island outfit, three full regiments for the entire course of the war, not counting those men she provided for the defense of her own borders. Baptists. Time prevents anything like a full accounting of men and their service. I can only offer a few examples. The Baptists fought as soldiers by the multiplied thousands. Men such as Hezekiah Smith of Massachusetts, William Rogers of Philadelphia, and John Gano of New York served as chaplains. Washington said of these men and their fellow ministers, quote, Baptist chaplains were among the most prominent and useful in the army, unquote. John Hart, some of you will know that name. John Hart, a New Jersey Baptist, was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. 
Joab Houghton, also of New Jersey, four days after the Battle of Lexington and Concord, raised a regiment from the men of his Hopewell, New Jersey church and set out for Boston. Every man assembled in that church on that day stepped out in the aisle and said, I'll follow you to Boston. Baptists. Scores upon scores of other names could be called. And when the British were defeated and a new country was being established, its leaders were not forgetful of the conspicuous role Baptists had played in that victory. Washington himself, in reply to a letter from the General Convention of the Baptist Churches of Virginia, a letter in which they expressed their fears that the new Constitution did not sufficiently safeguard liberty of conscience, first reminisced of them, quote, I recollect with satisfaction that the religious society of which you are members have been throughout America uniformly and almost unanimously the firm friends of civil liberty and the persevering promoters of our glorious revolution, unquote. In a similar vein did Mr. Jefferson respond to a letter from the Buck Mountain Baptist Church in 1809, which he reflected, quote, We have acted together from the origin to the end of a memorable revolution, and we have contributed each in a line allotted to us our endeavors to render its issue a permanent blessing to our country. Accept, he said, accept the offering of my affectionate esteem and respect. Unquote. One author observed that Jefferson sometimes spoke with scorn of other denominations, but not a word unfriendly to the Baptists can be found among his letters. <clears throat> the efforts of Baptists if they were not alone, then certainly they were the largest part responsible for, secure, for securing the provisions of the First Amendment enumerating the right of full religious liberty. At the same time, they struggled to achieve that liberty in all the states. The two great contests that would, in a sense, determine all the others were one in the north, one in the South, the states of Virginia and Massachusetts. Virginia's contest was won in 1785 with the help of Jefferson and Madison. The National Constitution's First Amendment came four years later in 1789, but the struggle in Massachusetts was of a long continuance. It was not until 1833 that the last vestiges of the state establishment of churches was removed from Massachusetts' constitution. For half a century, half a century past the end of the war that secured independence for our nation, Baptists in Massachusetts continued the struggle for the rights of conscience. 
our friend Dr. Baldwin lent his voice and influence to the cause through 35 years of ministry. And when in 1820 he was elected a delegate to the revision of the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention, he labored for 18 months during their deliberations to effect the change. In December 1820, his speech to the assembly on that subject is reported. It says, Mr. Baldwin of Boston rose for the purpose of supporting the resolution. He appealed to the Mosaic dispensation to prove that no penalties were inflicted by the civil magistrates to enforce the performance of religious duties. He quoted also from the New Testament to show that religion was not to be propagated and supported by the aid of the civil magistrate. In our Lord's instructions to His disciples, He said, if they do not receive you, what then? Deliver them over to the civil magistrate? No, but shake off the dust of your feet against them. The kingdom of our Savior was not of this world. Religion was not supported in the apostolic age by force of any kind. St. Paul preached the gospel from Jerusalem roundabout to Illyricum, a distance of a thousand miles. It did not appear that his preaching was supported, but by the power of truth. He said that Constantine had done Christianity greater injury than good by adopting it as the religion of the state. It did not need the aid of government to assist its propagation. Its connection with the government tended to corrupt it. And he attributed the low state of Christianity during the Dark Ages to its amalgamation with the civil power. He described the atrocities committed in France under the sanction of Christianity. The massacre of 60,000 Protestants in 1562. Two civil wars that followed. The massacre at Paris when 70,000 persons were slaughtered and human blood flowed down the channels of the streets and attributed these cruelties to the unnatural combination of religion with the civil power. He referred to the persecutions in England, the burnings at Smithfield, the imprisonment of John Bunyan, the ejection of 2,000 dissenting ministers, the persecution of Thomas DeLon, and other, other examples to show the abuses of religion when connected with the civil power. He honored the memory of our ancestors. But, said he, shall we perch ourselves upon their tombstones and sing a requiem to their ashes? Or shall we endeavor to derive profit from their experience and example and continue the course of improvement which they began? We should imitate their virtues and take warning from their vices. He said that no denomination had been more devoted supporters of the government of this commonwealth, nor more persevering friends of liberty than that to which he belonged. The dissenting denominations, he said, had never re resorted to the aid of the law for the support of religion. They depended solely upon the power of truth 
yet they had always been increasing. How was it? Oppress any people, he said, and you may be sure that they will effectually resist it. He did not wish there should be any oppression, any subordination of one denomination to another. He would, for his part, never consent to receive anything toward his support that was extorted by the aid of law. He coveted no man's gold or silver. Such support, he said, was not necessary. Despite his speech, his efforts, and those of others, they were unsuccessful. But finally, in 1833, the full flowering of liberty, even in Massachusetts, came forth. So much more could be said. So much more should be said. But I hope that enough has been said to demonstrate the un paralleled role Baptists had in proclaiming, supporting, and fighting for true, full religious liberty. The contributions of other individuals and denominations we do acknowledge, but we do not hesitate to assert from the unquestioned history of our spiritual forefathers in the words of the historian George Bancroft, quote, freedom of conscience, unlimited freedom of mind, was from the first the trophy of the Baptists, unquote. But I must, I think, leave us with a warning. A warning from a British statesman of more than 400 years ago. Peter Wentworth. Speaking upon this very subject in Parliament. The subject of liberty and how it may be lost. Wentworth said, Sweet is the name of liberty. But the thing itself, a value beyond all inestimable treasure, so much the more it behooveth us to take care, lest contenting ourselves with the sweetness of the name, we lose and forego the thing itself. Let us take care, my brethren, to hold fast the thing itself and not content ourselves with the name only. Much there to digest, even in the brevity of that coverage, much to digest. I hope you take it to your heart, I hope you'll listen to it again, and let it burn within your soul to realize the price our people, Baptist people, have paid for liberty. <laughs>